Hello, you're listening to Alfie Moore's podcast uh, with me, Alfie Moore. I'm an experienced police sergeant with the Humberside Police. Each week on the podcast, I'll be discussing policing matters with a special guest and trying to show you what actually goes on inside the police force. As always, I'll be joined by Will, the producer. Hi, Will. Hey, Alfie. Today, my special guest is former Detective Sergeant Chris Hobbs. During his Mets Police colourful career spanning over 30 years, he's found himself in the middle of football wars, gang wars and drug smuggling. Sounds glamorous, but often drug recovery mainly involved patience and a potty, didn't it, Chris? (laughs) 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 Welcome, Chris. Hello, nice to be here. So, you joined and you got got posted to... uh, Southall. Southall. Policing in Southall, big Asian community, isn't it? Yes, it's always regarded really as the Asian capital of um, of the UK. It's it's because it's proximity to the airport, and early on, I suppose after the war, labour was needed in the Southall factories, and so they recruited the labour from the um, Indian subcontinent. So pretty generally supportive. But there were some pretty dramatic times, I think, during uh, during my 32 years in Southall. It was a place that did have its tensions. So where was the conflict in the early days? Well, initially, when I first started as a young PC, the real problem we had then, there was a gang problem in Southall, two rival gangs, but the main issue was around the council estates that surrounded Southall. They were predominantly white, they were quite rough, and within those estates you had... Well, well, who were the gangs then? Were they, the, the gangs were... Asian? Yeah, white, Asian gangs. Asian These gangs. were Asian, Asian gangs. Um, but the, the well, white... Involved in criminality? Yeah, criminal, all sorts of criminality, protection rackets, smuggling, fraud. They were into all sorts and didn't like each other very much. Okay, that's it. I mean, you, do, you don't tend to hear about that. You hear about sort of uh, uh, white gangs and black gangs, but, but you don't hear that much these days about Asian gangs. They were very well known in South, or everyone knew these particular gangs, and there was an operation that was mounted against them that was very successful and largely broke them up. Um, but at the time... I joined, and for a little while after that, they were quite quite prevalent, and they used to engage in quite ferocious battles with each other on the streets of Southall, involving swords and all sorts. But as I said, the real problem that we were concerned with, apart from that, was the white council estates. And if you were Asian or black living on those council estates, you had a really bad time. You know, you, there were lots of assaults, windows going in, car windows being smashed by these, these gangs of skinheads. And what was the plan about where to put people? What, were we trying to uh, integrate the communities or, or were, we, were we trying to keep them apart? When it came to housing, did, we just, did you just get the next one on the list regardless of, you, of your colour or was there any planning? I don't think there was any planning there, not that we were aware of. It, it did come over the years that these estates became much more integrated. And, and you lost those sort of tensions within those estates, council estates. So now they are very much multiracial uh, and, and reasonably harmonious, although you still get a lot of crime going on. Um, but in those days, I can remember one afternoon or early evening, we went along the Ricelip Road past the fairground and the street, the road was crowded with people. So obviously we stopped. We had a look at what was going on, couldn't figure it out, went into the fairground, spoke to the fairground workers, and uh, they were furious. And they said that there'd been a lot of Sikhs that come up from Southall with their families, with children, with babies, and they got attacked by gangs of skinheads from these council estates. 
and uh, fairground workers were livid. The next morning, which was a Monday, we were on a quick changeover, which was really hard work. You finished at 10, you were I back still, on at I 6. I remember them. Oh, oh Scott. Yeah. But we, we got together and we went to see the chief inspector operations and we told him what had happened and we said, uh, we, we really don't think this should be going on. So I said, we'll come back this evening, book on for overtime and come and deal with it. And we did. People responsible... Were they part of a gang or were they just the skinheads? Was that, they, was they that all, a gang thing? They were all aligned to the British movement, which was a right-wing organisation that was quite prevalent then, and they were all British movement supporters. There was British movement graffiti on the walls and so on and so forth. Uh, so we so just, an early version of the National Front. National Front, Combat 18, um, you know, the people first, first Britain first, isn't it, that we've got now. So, yeah, they were all loyal supporters of those groups so we gave them a hard time got a little sort of add-on to a lot of laws now a racially aggravated tag add-on so a lot of crimes like assault and public order offenses mm. can have a, a racially aggravated element and that means they get extra that's right at court which is which is nice so uh you mentioned the brixton riots then <laughs> you, you you were Policing at the time, was it 81, the Brixton riots? Yes, I was. Um, I was. I was at home, and unusually then, they broke into the sports Saturday afternoon to this news broadcast saying there's a big riot going on in Brixton, there was a bit of footage. So I rang up Southall Police Station and said, look, I was night duty that night, if you want somebody to come in early. And they said, no, no, it'd be all right, it'd be all right, uh, no problem. <laughs> Half an hour later, or can you get here, please? <laughs> I understand from what you said earlier that you you were injured in the Brixton riots yourself. No, that was the Southall riots. Okay. I do like my riots. Different riots. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell me about the night that, that, that you sort of copped for a brick then. Well, that was the end of my first week on the crime squad. Um, so I was playing clothes. I'd so got... the crime squad it was like a local sort of plain clothes proactive team. yes that's right and it was something to get asked on to be on the crime squad so i was quite flattered to be asked to go one on step it, towards being a crd officer right um so it's the end of the first week and we were going to go for a, have a quiet drink in the office which you could do in those days in the crd offices quiet drink in the office is great isn't it? <laughs> bottle of whiskey in the cabinet yeah, yeah. yes uh, then we heard of problems down the broadway and we'd heard rumours that something might be kicking off. We didn't know exactly what. And we found out quite quickly that a skinhead group was playing at the Hambra Tavern, which is at the end of Southall Broadway. And the skinhead group were known for their right-wing leanings, although they've since denied it. Uh, and they attracted a skinhead following. So basically, some of the skinheads were local, the same people who've been attacking the Asians, some and, and a lot were from all over London. So they came to Southall for this concert at this pub. In the afternoon, there were trouble, trouble down the Broadway. The skinheads started smashing windows of Asian shops. The first arrest made, strangely enough, was by an Asian police officer who was on his way to Heathrow, to where he was working with two of his mates in the car, and they saw these skinheads smashing an Asian shop window, and they jumped out of the car and arrested them. Good for them, yeah. Exactly. But that didn't sort of stop the flow of events. So the skinheads 
were being seen going down the Broadway. The Asian youths knew they were coming. We didn't. There was a big intelligence failing there because, generally speaking, our community intelligence was pretty good. So although we knew there was some sort of tension, we didn't know what. Um, but the Asian youths were plotted up in snooker halls and other places around Southall. So they came out on the streets. And uh, we went down to the Hanbury Tavern in plain clothes. And the first bricks and bottles started being thrown, and it was quite hostile. So I nipped back home. I would live reasonably close, jumped in the chief superintendent's car with a mate of mine, went home, got changed into uniform. He borrowed some of my gear, which was a bit funny because he, <laughs> he was about five foot eight and I was six foot four. <laughs> and then we went back in the chief superintendent's car down south of Broadway. A fire engine. Apparently they set something on fire, so we followed the fire engine down. Uh, the car got pelted with stuff, but the fire engine took most of it. And then we got to where there was a police line across across the Broadway. So we joined the police line, came under attack. Uh, the fire engine came under attack, so we had to baton charge to get the firemen out of their fire engine. Luckily, they sent a green coach that was on its way to Brixton, because in those days you had hundreds of police reserves at Brixton in case there was another riot. This was about three months after the riot. So we sent the coach down from Southall. They turned it back, thank goodness. Coach came back to Southall Broadway. There were shields so you got in the coach. Some reinforcements. We got about 20-odd reinforcements plus shields. And the chief inspector who came out of Southall Police Station said, said as we went to get the locker where the shields were, said, no, no, don't get the shields out, that'll antagonise them. (laughs) (laughs) So so he got pushed to one side. Sent the chief inspector from his office, out of his (laughs) office window. You know when you go out, don't take shields. So, yeah, so we got, got the shields out, put out some sort of line of shields, and then for the next, I don't know how long it was, it must have been a good three hours, we got absolutely pasted. So this is from, this is from skinheads? No, this is from the Asians. This is from the Asians, who okay. Up. The skinheads were in the pub listening to their oi music. Right. And the, the Asians were trying to get to the skinheads, yeah. and, and you were in the way. We were in the way, so we had a line. So for the next three hours, we'd push forward and push the Asians back. And then they would push us back, and we were losing people. People were going down like nine pins because there were no, there was no protective equipment then. We had the shields. And so tired, isn't it, being at the front line like that? You're covered in sweat and everything. Well, you know, when three the, hours is a long time. Isn't when it? the adrenaline's flowing, it's it's okay. You've you've got the adrenaline rush that sort of keeps you going. Um, but eventually, the adrenaline runs out. And, uh, Plus, there's always a shortage of things like water getting to you, and, and no, you can become dehydrated. Didn't and even think about that, to be quite honest. Uh, but yeah, you're quite right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and at, at one stage, I can remember thinking, I'm going to die here. You know, if our line breaks and we have to run, they're going to be on us, and you know, we are going to be in serious trouble if we if we do make a run for it. But we must have. I don't know how many officers were injured. Maybe. 50 or 60. We out of how many? 50 or 60. Out of how many, how many of you Probably, were there? Probably, maybe there was about 100 officers. So, uh, rough so, figures. so there must have been a lot of, a lot of people on the streets. But, but, but you sort of, so, so we're in this scene, and I do apologise, I interrupt a bit. You're in this scene, really scary. There's, there's bricks coming over. Uh, police officers are getting head injuries and, and, and falling and, and, and you're losing numbers. You're vastly outnumbered. 
and poorly equipped. And and you got injured yourself. That's right. I got I got hit because we when we moved forward, what we didn't have were enough officers to seal the side roads off. Right. So they come up the side roads and throw bricks at us from behind. Right. So I got clobbered on the back of the head. And I had a, a police helmet on, a routine beat helmet, but it was one that, it was reinforced, fortunately, as they all were then. So you got a bit of protection, but there was still a big dent in it and blood. Right. And, uh, yeah, I got knocked out and was dragged back to the bridge where there were some ambulances and, um, yeah, recovered. Um, got on the radio to Scotland Yard. There was a police fan there and said, where the hell are you? <laughs> you know, we're getting slaughtered here. Where's, where's our... Where's our reinforcements? And the poor lady operator was going, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, we're, we're doing our best here to get people to you. So uh, you were it, straight back. So head so injury, knocked out, patched up, and back on the yeah, front yeah, line again. Yeah, 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 but that's, you know, that's, that's sort of what we did then, really. Um, another, another thing that I remember vividly as well, the green police coach. Remember the one that was down, down at Brixton and came back no, with I don't, the officers? I, I, no, I, I, you mentioned the green coach. Be, yeah, be, where be, the shields were in. Right, yeah. Now, that, that coach was actually used, the driver of the coach was a civilian guy. He was an Asian guy. I remember him well. And as we were getting hammered, he drove the coach forward and through our line of shields and actually pushed it out in front of our line of shields. So the coach would take most of the bricks. You know, they all started throwing bricks at the coach. And then he reversed back slowly as we were retreating and actually protected us. Now, we were quite... He got a, a major award for that. Yeah. Now, he was eventually a traffic sergeant, then got in the, the coach, the driver's seat, said, oh, you've done enough, you know, let me take over. He took in and carried on reversing, or re reversed back to the bridge. And, uh, and they both got commendations for doing what they did because they were taking a terrible pasting. Then we retreated back. The coach had to be left because it was all the windows were smashed in. And then the Asian rioters got into the coach, pushed it into the pub, set the coach on fire... Jeez. And it set fire to the pub. Now, luckily, the skinheads had all been evacuated out of the pub by this time, because obviously we, we were sort of losing the battle on the street. So we had this incredible, surreal situation of the coach on fire and then watching as it set fire to the pub. I'm amazed nobody sort of got, got killed, really, from what you've said. It's Absolutely. It a very violent thing, wasn't it? It was. I know what you mean about predicting that something's... It was 2011 when, when sort of austerity kicked in and people were getting fed up of being skint while they were, I guess, they were watching sort of uh, the bankers and others start to recover and get money. You could feel the animosity on the streets. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd start to do stand-up as, as a hobby and I'd I was still in the police, but I decided to take a show to the Edinburgh Festival. So I booked... A few weeks in August off, used all my holidays up in the place, and I, I wrote a show called I Predict a Riot, and I booked it into a room in 2011 in the Edinburgh Festival, and in the end I couldn't go because it was a riot. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't get the time off work, so I took it in 2012 and I had to change the title to I Predicted a Riot. <laughs> <laughs> so, you uh, apply for Special Branch... You were keen to go into special branch. That sounds very... And you were successful. You got in. So, so when, we, when we say special branch, 
people think, wow, that sounds so great. That's like MI5 or mm. it, it sounds fantastic uh, and very exciting, cloak and dagger stuff. We like to find out in this show what, what jobs are really like. On, what was it really like? Was it a bit more mundane than, than the people's perceptions? I couldn't possibly tell you. <laughs> what was it? Was it a thrilling yeah, No, it, it For me, as a, as a new DC, I went on to the desk, the, the um, Irish desk, which dealt with sort of the IRA and so on and so forth. But I obviously wasn't going to be put anywhere at the sharp end, and all, all I got really was mundane inquiries to do. And it was very, very, very mundane stuff, to be quite honest. Um, but I wasn't there that long, and eventually, say, I took the sergeant's exam, got promoted, and had to go back to the real world of uniform. Right, so the so promotion meant you were back on, on, the, on shift on the streets for a while, and then you got involved in some of the, the, the football stuff. That's right. You've always had interest in football? Very much so. When I was about 11, I used to go and watch my team and then travel to away games which in those days parents are you allowed to name your team or is that uh, yeah. no it's Lake Norian oh well that's why you're not saying yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I followed them all around the country and if they weren't playing I'd go and see games in London you know, Chelsea, West Ham, Arsenal, Tottenham I've been to just about all the grounds so, uh, so now are we into the 80s or still in the 70s now? no we're still we're very much into the 80s now so now which was a, a time that Football violence was at its peak, I guess, wasn't it? Very much so, yeah, yes. I think 70s was probably worse. In the 80s, we started to get things a bit more together. There was CCTV now in a lot of the grounds, and it wasn't bad CCTV either. Um, but there were still mass sort of issues involving rival fans. And then, of course, we had the Heysel disaster um, with Liverpool, involving Liverpool and Juventus fans and the Bradford fire. So... That really meant the powers that be thought had to think, well, we've got to do something about this. We, we can't really have this. And by that time, I'd done my stint in uniform. I wanted to get out of it as soon as I could, so I went and applied for the training unit up at Hendon. And the first job that I had to do was to design a training package after Heysel and Bradford in order to make sure we didn't get a disaster in London. So this was about sort of safety issues in, in football grounds? Very much so, yeah. Was part of that the, the hooligan element, or was this just physical logistics? It was both. It was a combination of both. The physicality of the grounds, um, exit, evacuation routes, rendezvous points, what happens if X, Y and Z occurs, uh, stewards, and it also involved ground or crowd safety, which meant hooligans keeping them apart. Um, so what, what did you want to see changed back then, then? Well, I just thought things could be improved. I mean, I, I policed a game when I was in uniform, uh, Brentford and Bristol City, and there was a lot of trouble, a real lot of trouble at that game. Chelsea supporters, I think, came along as well. So there was fighting all over the place. And so I submitted a report with some suggestions about how I felt policing football could be improved. And I didn't hear much about it for a while, but once I took my new post at this training unit in the peace and quiet of Hendon, um, I got a message saying, oh, they like this, and they're going to implement some of your ideas, and they want you to be part of the implementation. So, Because that can be really scary, policing football, can't it? I mean, even in recent times when I've policed football matches, if, if you get somebody in the crowd that's behaving really outrageously and you need to go in, 
you know, it's a real careful process, sat getting on the radio, I want a camera on me, here I am, I'm going into this stand, I want people backing me up, people watching me, and it's a lot easier to organise all that and, and, and keep safe these days. But those days, if you've got somebody, you could easily get swallowed, couldn't you, a police officer in, in a crowd full of, of, of people, quite scary. That's right, yeah, yeah. It, it was quite scary, although I suppose they tended to want to get at each other more than, than attack police. These days, I think it's a bit different. There's much more hostility towards police, perhaps, than even there was then. Um, but I never felt particularly frightened at football matches. Even on one occasion, I was literally by myself between hundreds of England fans on one side and Scotland fans on the other at Wembley. Normally a quiet game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I didn't feel particularly scared there. I was just trying to keep them apart. And it was all captured on CCTV. And... Uh, which I did fairly well for a few minutes. Do you, th- do you think they <laughs> for a few minutes? <laughs> yeah. do, do you think they wanted to be kept apart, or do you think it was a bit of uh, yeah, a, a bit of macho? They know the police. It, it, you know, we're, we're making gestures, we're making aggressive threats. We know the police are going to stop us. Do you think if the police had stepped away, they'd have actually fought, or they or they wanted us to, to keep them apart? I think it, it really depends on the game. Sometimes you'll get a small group of supporters who will taunt because there's a police line. But other, if you've got something like Chelsea and West Ham or West Ham and Millwall... They mean it. You know, it's police or not, they'll, they'll want to get at each other and hurt each other. And, and has that changed, do you think? No, no. Yeah. If, you, if you had a, a West Ham-Millwall game now, there will be a lot of problems. If you have even a, a Tottenham-West Ham game, it has to be policed by several hundred police officers to keep them apart. If you didn't have those officers, then there would be serious problems and probably people would be badly hurt or worse. And one of the things, the difference these days between, you know, from when I was policing football, then the troublemakers tended to be people in their teens and early 20s. These days, a lot of the hooligans are people in their 30s, 40s and 50s who've never been able to let it go. And they're far more difficult to deal with, for, especially young police officers, because they don't care. Mm. They don't care about being arrested. They'll hurl abuse. They're the same people who turn up on these right-wing protests, the Tommy mm. Robinson protests. Mm. They really don't care about police officers. Yeah. They've been there. They've probably been arrested, and they've been involved in fights. They've been involved in terrorist trouble for decades. So there is no fear. Great. So, tell us about back at the airport. <laughs> I want to get to this subject because you've put an extra flight on now. Jamaican Airlines have got a flight landing in Heathrow when you That's went right. back in special branch to work at the airport. And that changed the uh, dynamic of things, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, probably a life change, a bit of a life changer, really. When I got back, I went to Terminal 3, uh, which is a busy, busy terminal anyway. It gets flights from all over the world. And I, I suddenly became aware that every time one particular flight came in, there was a flurry of activity amongst immigration officers and customs officers, and also on the British Airways flight that came into Gatwick from Kingston. So you had lots and lots of couriers on the flight, and most of those couriers would have swallowed packages containing drugs, containing cocaine. Not all of them. There were other sorts of concealments as well. So for customs, this was a really busy flight, and I got curious. Because how many would be on a flight? A couple of hundred or so? Well, we did, um, 
Passengers, I mean. Passengers, probably around 300 on a flight. And you've got, what, two customs officers that can concentrate on that flight? No, you, you normally have a team. It depends whether there'd be one or two teams in, in there. But you normally have maybe half a dozen customs officers. Still not a lot, spread no. over 200 and odd passengers. No, not a lot at all. And there were a lot of swallowers. And then I didn't have a lot of sympathy for the swallowers. Um, so was it your job? I nearly used a spotter term again, but was it your, your job, you and another special branch officer, to watch people getting off that plane and thinking that he's swallowed something? What, what I tended, what we tended to do, for a start, it wasn't really within special branches remit. Special branches remit was more terrorism than crime. But we took an interest in it and the immigration people would, would come to us and we encouraged them to. So we might check out addresses people were said they were going to. Now, obviously, if that address turned out to be a crack house, then that person will be worth looking at and referring down to customers. So you're working with customer and, and swapping and, intelligence? Yes, to... yeah, basically. Um, and a lot of swallows were being arrested. Now, these weren't these packages weren't condoms like they used to be initially. These were rubberized packages that were really fairly secure, not always, and, and you wouldn't last very long if one burst. Um, and a lot of the people that were coming through as couriers were Jamaicans. There was no visa system then, so you could simply buy a ticket and get on a plane, and it would be decided at Heathrow or Gatwick whether you'd actually be granted admission to the country or not. Um, but a lot of them from the poor areas we were finding out were swallowers, so they would be being paid maybe a thousand, two thousand pound to carry maybe thirty, fifty thousand pounds worth of cocaine. But if, they, if you come from one of those ghetto areas, then that's going to change your life if a thousand, two thousand pounds is going to make a hell of a lot of difference to you and your kids. Initially, we had no sympathy at all for swallowers if they got caught, none at all. That, that was to change. Um, but we decided, or customs bosses then decided, this is taking up too much of our time. If you've got a team with a swallower, that swallow has to be sat on, not literally, has to be kept in, <laughs> kept in detention and has to be forced to use the special toilet. So tell us about the special toilet, Chris. Yeah, I've not seen it in operation, let me so, hasten to add. I've no wish to see it in operation. So is, is, that, is it it's a potty? No, it's a transparent crapper, WC. Right, OK. It's transparent. And the With stuff, no flush, presumably. Yeah, there is a flush, but the, the customs officers will, will decide when it's going to flush, if it's going to flush. So the swallower eventually has to produce... So he's been detained. So he's got off, off the flight. He's been detained. And, and, and you or customs have asked him some questions. Why are you visiting the country? You're checking out uh, some addresses, his sponsors. Yeah. Uh, and... If the alarm bells start to ring and say this is not right, we think this guy is, is, is bringing drugs in. So is there any sort of test you can do? Yeah, what they used to do, what they still do, there's a, a test where you can take literally sweat off of someone's palm right, or even off the inside of their shoe and put it in a machine, an iron track machine. You put this slip in there and it will tell whether in the sweat there's any trace of cocaine. Right. So no, no matter how good the package is, there will still be that slight trace. 
And that, that in effect... Gives so they, these leak, these, these rubber packages yeah, they, leak they, they slightly? Yeah, very, very slightly. Not so it's going to make the, the courier ill or anything like that, but the, there will be a trace. And that, that gives the grounds for, for arrest and detaining? That's right. As soon as... And you put it in the machine, it, the machine screams and flashes red, and you straight away, then you've got your reasonable grounds. And is that your lock-up, or is that customers? No, that's all customs. That's customers' lock-up. So, so, so now we've been arrested, now we've got him detained, yeah. and, and and they're going to ask him if he's swallowed anything. Of course not, yeah. And people generally say what? There is. Some will say yes. Some will keep those cheeks clenched for as long as they possibly <laughs> can in <laughs> denial. How, and then is it just a question of sitting it out? Yes. Yeah. What's a, what's a record you can remember of oh, somebody not going for a number two? Not that I was involved in, but since then. It's happened since then, but since then, it, I think it's about a month. A month? I think without going to the loo? I think that's yeah. the record. Yeah. Um, that's somebody that doesn't want to get caught. Let's <laughs> play the long game, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. But anyway, so you've got the special toilets. They're kept in detention. Initially, they were in the terminal, but then they got special detention facilities. So somebody's got the yeah. glamorous job yeah. of getting a pair of rubber gloves on and, and, and swimming through whatever comes out to well, try and got find a bag. Well, you've got into the toilet, you've got rubber gloves. Oh, have you? That's handy. <laughs> so, so you can actually stick your hands in and then see what's there. Yeah. And yeah. then you've got various again you don't actually touch it you've got various sprays and so on to wash off the packages right no matter how well they're washed off well, oh, it's a good a lingering smell good devices isn't it it's been thought through this 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 toilet. that's right Some and what sort of quantity what's what what uh, is it, i'm trying to think of weight yeah but i mean I, I think you're talking maybe at the maximum i think will be about half a kilo so so a bag of sugar is a kilo yeah. So half a bag of sugar. That's a lot. Yeah. And, and probably more often it would be about probably a third, maybe, or even less. It really depends on how much. And that's got street value of tens of thousands of that's pounds. That's right, yeah, yeah. And what sort of sentence are these? Um, sorry, will that, will that nearly always be cocaine? Yes, occasionally, very occasionally, you, you find cannabis. But swallowing cannabis packages tends to be a bit, well, you know, you make a huge sum of money from it. It just seems a bit of a waste of effort compared to the club. But you, you did get some swallowers who would swallow cannabis for one reason or another. And sometimes it, it could be because um, the courier they recruited, because it, it went from recruiting Jamaicans from ghettos, and when they were being caught hand over fist, the Jamaicans in the ghetto areas wised up and basically said, well, we're not going to do this anymore. So they, so they, they started recruiting British drug users addicts, people who got into debt. So, so yeah, so they would go over to Jamaica, be put up, they would be given drugs to swallow, and then they would sort of come back, and then they would be detected, and uh, and they would sort of have to go through that procedure, and I can't remember what your original question was. Whether it was cannabis or cocaine. Um, so you said sometimes it, it would yeah, be cannabis. Uh, yeah, and sometimes that courier will be su of such poor quality because he'd sort of look as if, if he, he or she was at death's door, that they'd think, oh, shit, you know, we're not going to waste cocaine on that person. We'll give them some cannabis. <coughs> They'll get stopped, 
they'll have to go through the same procedure and in a way that's a good thing because that's taking out it's a decoy so yeah. they send them in with cannabis so that they get stopped use up the customer officer and and the the real swallower with the, with yeah. the good gear gets through i'm not saying that was a regular mo that they use but that that was and was there any typical sort of well you've just said that, that they were using sort of uh white addicts so so uh a particular clearly if 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 they're addicts you're looking for that but presumably they want to recruit people that look clean that look healthy they don't look like drug users would they be Male, female? Be a mixture. They would be a mixture. Age-wise? Again, a mixture. You, you would want them to look respectable. And some of the ones we stopped um, more out in Jamaica were quite respectable. And you had the time out in Jamaica. Um, so you went over to Jamaica yeah. to work with those authorities to try and stop them getting on the plane and, and to, to look at the gang crime over there. Yeah, because customs, the customs hierarchy, because obviously that was this was sucking in customs officers and ourselves. The customs hierarchy, the bosses turned around to customs officers and said, we don't want you to arrest swallowers anymore because it's too resource intensive. What you're getting from them in terms of weight, oh, it's, it's worth money, quite a lot of money, but it's insignificant compared to bigger seizures that you might get if they're carrying it in bags or something like that. So they were virtually ordered to stop looking for swallowers. Now, they weren't very happy about that, so mm. they, they snitched to me, and I snitched to my bosses that this was going on. And my bosses got in touch with the customs bosses and said, no, sorry, you can't do this. So it was agreed they'd do a scoping exercise at Heathrow to see how bad the problem actually was. So they pulled in customs officers from all over southern England. And the Air Jamaica flight came in. Somebody tipped off a Daily, Mar a Daily Mirror reporter who was on the flight. The headlines the next morning were cocaine air in respect of the plane. They got to 39 swallowers and ran out of customs officers. Um, that was it. So it was a big problem. And they did one at Gatwick with British Airways from Kingston, and that got up to 29 before they ran out of customs officers. So there was a problem. And it was decided then, and it ended up with a government agreement with the Jamaicans, that customs officers would go to Jamaica, work with the Jamaican police and stop them before they actually got on the plane to the UK, try and detect them in Jamaica, not wait until they got to the UK. Um, and, and that's what happened. OK, uh, Chris, a uh, couple of quick questions. One thing you would improve today with the police if you've got all powerful I think to be quite honest leadership the leadership there's some very good leaders out there but you still hear absolute horror stories about supervisors and about very senior officers who really seem to lack any sort of empathy they just seem to be out for themselves um, so I think leadership would be the priority. Follow as number two, we touched on it earlier, community policing. We've got to bring back good, effective community policing as soon as possible. Former Detective Sergeant Chris Hobbs, Obsey, you've had a very interesting uh, career and you've, uh, you've made a big difference, I think, in people's lives, which is great. Now... Thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. We finish with a little quirky thing, and you can be forgiven 
for uh, being a bit slow with this, given that you've been retired since 2011. We asked people if they can remember the caution, and will times how quickly <laughs> you can do the caution. So You're not obliged to say anything, but it may harm your defence if you fail to mention when question anything you later come to rely upon in court, something like that. I've got, I've got them off the television, to be quite honest. I've pretty close, <laughs> pretty close. And the time for that is uh, 9.47 seconds. All right. Well done, Chris, and thanks for coming in. See you again. Cheers, mate.